This is Coda Radio, episode 475, for July 18th, 2022. Oh, hey there, good buddy. Welcome into Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show. Taking a pragmatic look at the art and the business, the software development, and the world of technology. My name is Chris, and joining us right there from his tactical podcasting station, it's our host, Mr. Dominic. Hello, Mike. Mamma mia, there's a put and a lean on the castle because I keep a losing the princess. <laughs> you know, eventually you got to take some responsibility there. Like, you just put some security in. Who do I got to help in me? An imaginary mushroom in my brother who says he sees ghosts everywhere. <laughs> I'm all alone. And Bowser breathes the fire like a pepper. Not to mention, not to mention, you're constantly out there breaking bricks with your bare hands. So I can imagine. Yes, a like lot. a baller, like my man, Vin Diesel. I, I've had a really good week, you know, and I, I think it's all thanks to your Twitter feed. I have no recollection. Uh, Madam Senator, I, I don't know. No, I'm, it's really nice. It's positive. You know, so here I am the other day. In fact, I just sort of, I captured this and I thought, let's share it on the show because it's just so great. So uh, a tweet comes out from Mr. Dominic on July 15th at 10 a.m. And it just says simply, living more or less purely in desktop Linux these days. I'm finding a lot to love, but do wish the community didn't have to rely so heavily on Electron. Um, and, he, you know, you mentioned uh, elementary OS a little bit. And I thought, oh, this is great. He's having a great time with Linux. So I thought, I'll just check in now this morning just to see how things are going. Because I'm sure you've tweeted later. Oh, yeah. In fact, the very next tweet on July 15th at 6 p.m. in the evening it looks like you're buying a MacBook Pro the very same day. The day you tweet about how great desktop Linux is, a mere half a day later, you buy a MacBook Pro. On the advice of my attorney, um, I respectfully decline to answer this question as it may very obviously incriminate me. <laughs> so you're supposed to get it tomorrow, too. I already got it. They, in fact, they screwed up my weekend plans because FedEx was like, yo, dog, you need to be here to sign for this and we'll be there in three hours. Ding, ding. <laughs> There was there was less than eight hours between the two tweets. What happened in that eight hours? <laughs> well, we can blame Neelai Patel for this one. Oh, I always do. Was it the beard or what was it? It was the Verges posting about a sale on that specific MacBook Pro. And me, I don't want to dunk too hard on the good folks at Ionic, but their deployment tools, their cloud deployment solutions, not very good. And I had to hand me down my MacBook Air. So I was like, hmm, now I won't use the iMac out of pure. Just, you're disgusting. Oh, you're so shameful. Oh. Intel. Oh, oh. Yeah, but this is an M1. You didn't go for the M2. Well, if you look at it, so that that's a, that's a great point. But if you look at the M2, the M1, it's really not worth it for what I'm doing, right? Um, I did, however, this is actually the largest laptop I've ever purchased for myself. Yeah, it's 16 inches. It's a big lunch tray. It, it's a big boy. It's uh, it's big and uh, dark and uh, speaking for a pre-show topic. Beautiful. Yeah, it's just beautiful. It, you know what? Space gray is beautiful. I have the 16-inch uh, as well with uh, the Max CPU in there. And I still, I still don't feel like I've ever put that thing to its maximum. So I'm sure for, as far as workload goes, the M1 is fine. I'm just surprised you weren't drawn, tempted by the maybe the new M2 Air or something like that. I was tempted, but I was dissuaded by the price and the 250 bucks off of this was was uh, 
tempting. Also, the screen. I wanted to hear what the hype was about this, uh, whatever, blah, 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 fancy, fancy screen. Yeah, right. It's got that XDR or whatever laptop it's display. Pretty. It's <laughs> It's very nice. <laughs> so I have not completely betrayed Linux, but, uh, you know, doing a little halvesy-halvesies here. Yeah, well, you know, you spend some time with your Linux family, then you sneak off on the weekends and go spend time with your Mac family. Well, like every good Republican congressman, you know, I get to the airport, I tap my foot a couple times. If you get that joke, you've been listening to a lot of Unfiltered several years ago. <laughs> like, a lot. Or you happen to be a Republican congressman who goes to the airport quite a bit. Deep ref. So Richard writes in because he's struggling, too, with a similar problem, only on the other side of the fence. He says, I recently bought a gaming laptop with a GeForce RTX 3080 Ti to do machine and deep learnings. It came with Windows 11, which means I also have WSLG. That's WSL with graphical apps. And it was really simple. I got to say to get Ubuntu 2204 set up a couple of commands. And I have Firefox and Chrome with audio. NVIDIA has special instructions for CUDA pass through back to Windows, and I have TensorFlow set up with the Jupyter Notebooks and the Jupyter Lab working. I'm thinking of all of this as I hear you review the HP Dev1 laptop running Linux. And I wonder if a Windows 11 machine would be a sufficient, if not even better, Linux machine for most people. Not for a Chris type that uses specialized AV and podcasting software, but maybe for like a Mike's hypothetical web developer type running Git, Node, Python, and other software in WSL and not ever having to worry about driver issues. Even more so for a developer at large, maybe a developer in the enterprise, where everyone runs the Microsoft suite of Office and Team software. I'm even writing this in Linux, in Chrome, running under WSL. So, do you think a Windows 11 machine is a viable alternative for devs that need Linux software? Yeah, right. I mean, I think we've talked about this before. You know, we're in such a state with the three major, the, the three families of the, you know, the, the major families of desktop operating systems that they're all good now, right? Mac is good. Mac, if you never want to charge it and it has infinite battery life and it's beautiful, it's good. Linux, if you want customability and to have your dev machine very much match your servers in a very likely way. Great. Windows, if you have to do some .NET and dual booting, is a pain in the ass. And I, you know, we did do a couple shows on WSL and WSL2. It's really good. Like, I, I know everybody likes to make fun of Windows, and the fact that the registry still exists is terrible. But it's, it, Windows 11 is fine. Not my cup of tea, but that's purely down to preference. That's what it's getting to. It's getting to what environment works better for you? What tooling works better with your workflow? And undoubtedly, probably should have said this first, what do you have the most experience with? What are you the most comfortable with? What it means is whatever your answer is to those things, there's just less and less downside now to which, whichever one you choose. And it also kind of means all the silly religious wars that were fought over desktop operating systems in the past have essentially been made irrelevant as they've all just sort of normalized. <laughs> Thanks, web technology and Linux. Electron. And, you know, for some of us, that experience is is Linux desktop. Some of it's the Mac, some of it's Windows, and sometimes it's all of them. Some of us, you know, we swing based on who's the highest bidder that night. <laughs> yeah, yeah. NeoVim's got a big buddy in Aiden. He writes in, I don't think NeoVim gets enough love. I don't think Vim would be making the changes it is today if NeoVim hadn't come along. Mm, why NeoVim? Well, they cleaned up the code base. It's larger and more distributed development team is definitely better, and it has better defaults and abilities for modern systems. 
And now that VimScript 9 is out, I'd be interested in your take on the rewriting of the VimScript engine versus just using Lua Await, which is the direction NeoVim took. I prefer the Lua choice, as it's more widely applicable than VimScript and is going to have a wider development base in the long term for the language itself. He's getting deep into the Vim ecosystem here. Yeah, that's that's good. I mean, I have not personally ever used NeoVim in any significant way. Um, I think I installed it like twice. But yeah, I, I you're probably right that competition, right? The thing we don't have in American Telco, for example, uh, makes everybody better. So NeoVim comes out, Vim gets better. Yeah, yeah, that sort of was my take too. It's like, yeah, it makes sense. Um, not super passionate about this topic. Don't have many thoughts on it, but the logic checks can out. I, can I take a side but related tangent here? You know, those are my favorite. Right? You know, I decided to tweet that I was interested in looking at Zed. And thank you guys for all the invite codes. But I only needed one. Still, thank you. <laughs> uh, and you know what? I feel like I was concerned that VS Code was going to just butcher the editor field for a while. I don't know. That's pretty cool. I've been trying it out for a couple of days. It's uh, it's definitely one. It feels snappy as hell, probably because it's written in Rust, and it reminds me a lot of maybe a potential TextMate successor, which I'm not sure if that's what they're really going for or not. But and, uh, I'm sorry, I mean TextMate too. Yes, don't yell at me. I don't know. Does anybody who listens to the show actually know what TextMate was? No, I'm old. Okay, great. Uh, in the eight days of the Leopard and the Snow Leopard, it was the de facto developer editor on Mac. In fact, I'm pretty sure most editors were using TextMate themes. They just write and and packages for a very long time. Yeah. Yeah, MonoDevelop used to. Remember that? That's a whole different era, man. That was a different time. And you paid 70 bucks for that, baby. <laughs> yeah, you did. Yeah, you did. and you did it happily. <laughs> <laughs> Gary's got a lead that will take no questions. Is my lead only knows one set of rules, and those are the U.S. Air Force rules. I like to ask why a project of ours was denied, or maybe why I'm filling out a spreadsheet that's listing our commits for the third time. He hates questions. He's a no questions kind of guy. Just do what I say. Any tips or resources for working with a no questions allowed development lead? Ooh, that's rough. Yeah, that just sucks, dude. Uh, also, why why do you have a spreadsheet of your commits? <laughs> no, because that's maybe how the lead likes to review them. I don't know. That's, I mean, Git log, it's right. There's know. nothing worse than when you're taking information out of one system and just transposing it to another system just so a lead can review it. Be frustrating. Also, if you just like, Gary, go on my GitHub. It's just Dominic M like everything else is, except for my Twitter, which is weird. But I have a little terminal script it's called get pretty print your manager might love it he, he may like be happy but your lead might love it i don't know i mean i've met guys like this i don't tend to love working with them because in kind of cray cray i used to know a guy who would count the number of commits so you every and and the developers learned real quick here's what you do one file one commit every time oh god yep so, yeah, that's, uh, I don't know, Gary, you got to gotta roll with the punches and maybe see if you can, you know, maybe it's time for a change. Yeah, I was thinking that. And he said Air Force, and I thought maybe he can't just easily change. That could be tricky. Right, he might be in, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I wonder. Keep us posted. Let us know how that goes and what your choices are. And if anybody has any tips, feel free to boost them in or email them in to coder.show slash contact. Gosh, that's a bad situation where you got a bad lead and you're kind of stuck there. I feel for you. 
Now, speaking of being stuck somewhere, if you're stuck in London, <laughs> see what I did there? Um, the London meetup is nigh. 6 p.m. local time, August 5th, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash meetup for details on that. Alex from Self Hosted will be there. There's already 104 attendees on the meetup. It's going to be outdoors, so that way uh, there's fresh air. That's going to be a hell of an event. I hear Boris Johnson is coming, so that's going to be a freaking rager. Yeah, he's got a little more free time now, so he's going to show up. But still, just as much vodka as you'd expect. <laughs> now, we do have the initial dates up for our West Coast tour that's coming up. What? Linode is making it possible for JB to go down and do a West Coast road tour and get a very special tour of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena. And we'll do a series of meetups in Southern Oregon, in Sacramento, in Southern California, and in Portland. And uh, those will be, although I don't see the Portland, Portland one on there yet, uh, those meetups are all getting listed at meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting. And uh, we'd, love to, we'd love to meet up with you. There it is. There's the Portland meetup. So we'll have them all there. Just so you know the dates, just in case you're in the area. We're going to be in Southern Oregon on the 20th of September. These are all September. We'll be in Sacramento on the 23rd. And we'll be in the Pasadena area on the 30th. And then we'll be in Portland on October 7th on our way back up. So if you are on anywhere near those places, do come out and say hi to us. It's, it's, it's a, who knows, who knows how many opportunities we'll have like this. And so it's a great chance. We also have a matrix group, a West coast crew matrix group set up where you can uh, chat with us, get details, coordinate with other people in your area. I'll have a link to the matrix room for that in the show notes as well as a link to the meetup page in the show notes. But if you're in the West Coast area, come out and say holler. Come say hi to us. Maybe we'll have like a cardboard cut out of you, Mike. You know, you're just like standing there next to me with a big smile. Or maybe like in your robe with a cigar and a martini, just like a cardboard cutout version of you. Yeah, that would work. I, th- I mean, why don't we all put our oculuses on and I can just be there? I think that's probably a good plan. Although I'm not sure the martini glass and the oculus are going to work well together. <laughs> smack, smack, clink, clink. But there's only one way to find out. <laughs> Above an open laptop, of course. <laughs> too soon, man. Too soon. Linode.com slash coder. Go there to get $100 in 60-day credit on a new account, and it's a great way to support the show while you get to try something great out. Linode is fast, reliable cloud hosting. You should try it for your next project, maybe the next thing you're building, or the next thing you want to learn about. Especially now that Linode has Kali Linux as a deployment option in their marketplace, it makes it super quick to try something like Kali out and learn a little bit about cybersecurity, but also test your own systems. It's a real legitimate tool. I love the upgrades that I have seen land over at Linode over the last couple of years. The rollout of their MVME storage, the rollout of the AMD Epic processors, more features like database as a service. They started with one database and now they've added multiple databases Hello, Postgres. Thank you very much, Linode. If you're a performance hound, you're going to love Linode. If you're a budget hound, you're going to love Linode. If you're a hound, you probably don't know what Linode is, but you get what I'm saying. Linode's been doing this for nearly 19 years, and over that time, they have had to refine it to stay competitive. They've really built something special here. So that's why they want to give you $100. I think they know that if you try it and compare it to what else is out there, not only will you see that it's a great service with a beautiful interface, but it's also a better value than the hyperscalers that want to lock you into their crazy esoteric platform. And we live in this world now where they're constantly trying to abstract away all these services into individual things that they can charge you for. 
Linode's how we've built everything in the last couple of years because we can go there, we can build our infrastructure, and it runs great. And if we ever need it, and I hear this from the audience all the time, if you ever need it, Linode has the absolute best service in the business. Their model is different than the hyperscalers. So they can offer you actual human support. That really matters. Go try it. Go see why we've been talking about it. And go see why they're still sponsoring. Because Coder Radio listeners like you are still trying it out and discovering it's the best out there. It's really great. We've got a whole crew of Linode users out there now. Go become one of them and get that $100 and support the show. Linode.com slash Coder. Let's talk about declarative UIs, because I love it when you get declarative. And I have been hearing some buzz around Flutter recently. Brand new app just dropped that I want to try out. I got declarative on the mind, and I think you do too. I do, I do. I do declare. What's the new app? Well, of course, you're going to put me on the spot. It was a Bitcoin app, of course. Of course it was. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we should just talk about what declarative UIs are, right? Basically, it's... Back in the olden days of, I guess, the 90s and early aughts. Actually, I don't know, for a while, right? UIs were basically object-oriented. You know, you had a button. The whole thing was like, the metaphor was like, it's an actual button, like in your car or whatever. Yay! Um, If you're familiar with skeuomorphism at all, that was a design language that was supposed to make things look like actual things. We had a lot of leather iOS apps for a long time. It's very, you know... Wachowski Brothers, Keanu Reeves in 1999. We were having a good time in black leather. Yeah. Now, because the world is in a fallen state, we have multiple screen sizes. And if you've ever done old school iOS development, that becomes increasingly hard. So we have declarative UI. What does that mean? I I do declare what my content is and what the data is and what how I expect it to be broadly structured, right? A lot of this declarative UI stuff will look very like XML-y, you know, kind of like a document adjacent. Chris, if you'll read us how Flutter explains, because the wizards at Google are like the techno mages, they know. Yeah, they do. They say that this, they have an introduction, which we will link in the show notes. They say frameworks from the Win, from Win32 to the web to Android and iOS typically use an imperative style of UI programming. This must be the style you're most familiar with where you manually construct a full functional UI entity, such as a UI view or equivalent, and later mutate it using methods and setters when the UI changes. I think I just understood it less by reading that. Well, no, so that's the old way, right? So that's, let's just say, let's, I'm going to just iOS it up to torture everybody. All right, let's say I have, you know, Jar Jar View, right? Okay. <laughs> okay. And then on Jar Jar View, I have, I think it's, what was it, view did load? That might be a view controller method, but I'm going to call it view did load. And then I would go jar jar view dot background equals blah, 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 color hash. Jar jar view dot title equals blah, 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 my title. And literally, you know, imperatively, line by line by line, I'm telling the view based on the loading trigger what it should look like manually. Then that view is my class jar jar view. I go into a view controller or some other type of container and I'm like, okay. You know, put the Jar Jar view on view controller did load, which is actually also called view did load because I think I, I think I got the view one wrong. It's been a long time. You know, back in the day, we would literally like denote the pixels, right? Like 20 pixels from the top, 10 from the left, 10 from the right and whatever below it. That's the imperative style. That's back in my day, me and Decker Kane were doing that. But Google, the heroes 
They are. I'm going to continue the quote. In order to lighten the burden on developers from having to program how to transition between various UI states, it's a me, a Mario, but I slipped a little bit there. I, I turned it, I turned into a boo from the quickie bar. That was, that was not good. Uh, by contrast, less developers crowd the current UI state and leaves the transitioning to the framework. Okay. We basically have, think of Swift, Swift UI. I know super popular with Ion audience. Let's just genericize it, right? You have a view. You lay out roughly what you want. So I want a table view. I have this item. Map it to the properties of this data structure, which, you know, could be some sort of object or it could just be like a hash, whatever. Lay it out. You're not telling it pixels. You're not imperatively saying do this, 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 then this. You're giving it the structure and the data that you want, and it's basically Voltroning itself up. The advantage of this, right, why declarative UI is that in theory, in theory, it's less manual, crappy, imperative coding work. Arguable, but okay. You get something called two-way data binding in most platforms that do this, which if you're familiar with Angular is like the magical thing where you don't have to do, because remember, let's go back to my old iOS app. If we have a text field in that Jar Jar view and someone types, you know, fork you Jar Jar, well, to actually get that back into the backing data model, I have to go jar jar dot message equals four q jar jar. With this kind of thing, it just automatically will do the two way binding, assuming you you know you know what you're doing, and you're in a platform that does that, which most of them do. Now. The problem is the same problem we always have with this kind of stuff. That little like promise it'll basically look good on all your devices is basically not true. Having said that, I don't think this is bad at all. But this is like the Java dream that me and Duke cry every night over as we cuddle in our sun t-shirts, blankets. There it is. There it is. Write once, run everywhere just doesn't really work. Granted, now that a lot of front-end development has transitioned to like HTML5, which I don't even think is a term we should use anymore because that's that's old. That's 2012 talking. Let's just call it modern web, right? It's less about the actual platform you're on and more about the screen size and the screen aspect ratio and resolution, which, I mean, I will say, like, I'm doing uh, a bit of Angular backed by Ionic or Ionic Angular, however you want to say that. And it's, you know, it's it's sane, right? If I put it on an iPad versus a phone, it looks okay for the most part. But, you know, it is little things. You end up wanting to change it anyway. So... That's my long-winded explanation of why you should look into declarative UI, but it's partially a lie. I feel like there's a an elephant in the room with this stuff, too. And that is, you've seen a lot of apps that come out where the developer, maybe rightfully so, just doesn't want to invest time or money or resources into UI development. And this can be a way where you can essentially ship minimum viable UI that actually survives platform updates frequently as well, but not all of them. So, okay, let's get crazy. Let's talk about Swift UI. Okay. Yeah, so for about a year, I've wanted this little prototype news reading app because I used to be an extremely heavy pocket user, as anybody who's followed me on Twitter for longer than two years will know, but I'm just less and less inclined to use it. I kind of prototyped something up in Swift UI, just the UI side and like basic, you know, internal data, no, no server backend yet. And it, as long as I kept it to Apple's controls, 
it was really, really nice. I mean, I kind of get why Marco always uses Apple's controls now. Because, you know what? I could, like, magically implement dark mode. I, as long as I followed the HIG, I... You know, the beautiful thing is I'm the customer for this app, so there's no one who's like, we need our special branding, special kind of, like, you know, God forbid, whatever drawer they want made that doesn't exist in iOS. Users are the worst part about writing software. I really think every user who complains about the color blue, and I'm carrying the spoon from roughly 10 years ago now, should have to work in the goddamn terminal. That's right. But not Warp and not Tabby. You know, we're installing Ubuntu 910. I'll give them 910. No fish shell. No fish. And I'm going to bust the autocomplete on you. I'm going to mess with your bash RC. There you go. That'll show them. That'll show them. Uh, no, it's <laughs> it's really it's really nice. It's uh, definitely opinionated. It's got some fifis. But if you're willing to tolerate its fifis, it's a lot like my six-year-old, honestly. Like, he, we play Mario Soccer, or Mario Strikers, which is, should be called Mario Soccer, but it's not. And he believes the way to win is to nuke me with red shells. And unfortunately, that seems to be working. Uh, I hate the shells. I hate the shells. I wish I could turn it off and make it like FIFA and be like, all right, buddy, let's go. I know. The challenge with Swift UI in particular is the minute you have to import UI kit, which I actually have an old blog post when I was trying this out last year. It works, but oh, baby, you got to wrap that in some Swift UI goodness. And some of your old school delegate callbacks might be mad at you. Oh, and of course, the biggest problem with Swift UI is the Swift part because it's not Objective-C. <laughs> yes, I had to get it in. Um, but I would encourage you. I mean, I would suggest, and this really hurts me every time I do that, if you are a young, budding, you know, glamorous or strapping or whatever wannabe iOS developer, leave the Objective-C to the old guys and just pay us a lot of money to do like the three hours you need to fix your stuff. Go ahead and go straight into SwiftUI. Oh, and it works across Mac OS and uh, iOS. Oh, and it works on the watch now, which is super interesting. What's super bad about it is that you're, you need a beastly laptop because it reloads constantly. They'll solve that for you for a price. Yeah, 20, $2,500 or twenty two fifty if you listen to Neelai Patel. You know, with your kid, you might be able to get an educational discount, right? Can't, can't you as a parent? I've actually never tried this myself, but there's educational discounts too. I mean, not to give you even more excuses to buy Macs, but something to look into. So, you know, the small business discount used to be really good, but that I think that's the same as the education. Isn't it like 7%? Uh, I do know the educational discount has gotten less. The, the, the literal Best Buy, we hate Amazon, we're competing with them, Prime Day sale, was more than both my business discount and... uh. Yeah, my fiance is actually taking some classes, so she could she has it through her school. It was about a hundred bucks cheaper just to go at Best Buy's. Like, you know, we hate Amazon sale, which I'm pretty sure is why they did that. Hey, man, works for me. Yeah, competition again. Here's looking at you, Comcast. So you know what I'm surprised hasn't really come up at all is React. I mean, where does this fit? It's because I hate it. Oh, Angular right. for life. Yeah, I mean, okay. All right. Well, there you go. <laughs> no, React Native. React Native is actually, I would say, the pure flood. Okay, so we, sh we should compare the three. The three we put in the doc. Flutter, SwiftUI, and React Native. SwiftUI, I would say, is the most bastardized of these declarative UI frameworks right now. That's partially because they just have a huge transition they've got to make, right? 
and you've got to be able to mix your UI kit code in there. And UI kit is as imperative as they come, right? It's view did load, bam, dot background color. Let's do it. React Native, I mean, comes from React.js, right? It's its own thing. Uh, same with Flutter. And they're they're real deep in this uh, declarative UI stuff where their whole pitch, both them and Flutter, is to write your code. You can have some rules for different device sizes, but you know what? You're data-driven, you're functionality-driven, everything. We, we used to call this reactive programming, which is kind of a different thing too, but most people doing reactive programming were also doing declarative UIs as kind of a byproduct. And they, they, they kind of go together really hand-in-hand, hand, right? Because it's less about, you know, you manually typing the code and it's more... Um, you know, the object backing your view changes, the view automatically changes. So yeah, I mean, if I would say if you just like have never heard of this con concept before, you had to pick one unless you're just that aspiring, you know, iOS uh, developer, I would say take a peek at Flutter or React Native first. They are the, the purest implementations of this. All right, we have links in the show notes. And of course, you can always check the uh, back catalog using tags, keywords. In fact, if you go to notes.jupiterbroadcasting.com, you can search for our previous coverage on React, on Swift, and on Flutter. It's all there. Some good stuff, especially as I think Flutter is, um, I think I'm beginning to change my mind on Flutter. I think we're going to see outside of Google adoption more and more. You've got several projects happening at Canonical. They're really close to their Flutter-based installer. And there's this Bitcoin Lightning wallet that is using Flutter specifically because they want to target iOS, Android, and the desktop. Yeah, I think from where when we first covered Flutter um, and when actually a couple of years ago, I interviewed the guy at the time who I think like ran Flutter or something. He was a big shot in Flutter. It's uh, it's become really impressive. I don't know. I'm still clinging to my Angular, which maybe we'll talk about the current state of Angular slash Ionic next week or week after. But that's uh, partially because I'm doing more pure webby stuff and Dart scares me. Tailscale, tailscale.com slash coder. Go there to get a free personal account for up to 20 devices and you support the show. Tailscale is a zero config VPN. It installs on any device in minutes. It manages your firewall rules and it works with your weird NAT. Devices connect directly to each other using WireGuard's noise protocol. They build you a mesh network with the best VPN in the business. Your devices connect directly to each other, establishing a flat mesh network. To you, transparently, it just looks like all your machines are on the same network. But they could be on multiple different providers. They could be across physical systems, virtual systems, mobile devices. It's fantastic. And you'll be impressed with how quick it is to get started. If you're a business, it'll work with your single sign-on provider that includes two-factor. And for me, the best part is, is every device now is accessible to me when I'm at work, when I'm on the road, when I'm at a friend's house, like anywhere I can get either with my mobile device or my laptops. They all just have tail scale. And it's really intelligent about how it routes the traffic. So you're not just like dumping all your internet traffic into your tail scale network. It's intelligent about that. It works with DNS too. So if you want to throw a DNS machine in your tail scale network, you can start resolving names. It has ACL support. It has sharing support. If you want to share one node or maybe just one port on a node with a friend, I do that with my buddy Alex. 
Devices connect so quickly and transparently. Once it's up, it's always on. That means it's always available. And then you can start building around that. They're always on VPNs that get up and going in just minutes. So go try it for yourself for free for up to 20 machines. Go to tailscale.com slash coder. You go there, you support the show, you try out one of the best things that's come around in years, and you get it for free up to 20 devices. That's tailscale.com slash coder. I wanted to document something that I thought was interesting happening in the tech industry. Do you remember... It was a bit ago. It seems like 10 years ago, thanks to the last couple of years, but it actually wasn't. It was 2020 and 2021 when America's greatest cyber hack occurred. SolarWinds software was compromised. And then all of the different government and large institution and enterprises that use the SolarWinds software, a lot of them got compromised as a result. And it turned out it was some really poor practices, I believe, with the way software updates were being distributed and checked. And it was just this devastating attack. And, you know, SolarWinds as a brand was essentially nuked from the sky and just drilled into the ground. Do you recall all of this? Oh, yeah. So it's interesting to watch as the tech media begins the process of repairing the brand. And I wanted to capture this so that way our audience could be aware of how this cycle works. Here's the general cycle. Large company and institution in the tech industry becomes well-known, well-established, brand equity is high, has a very embarrassing event, goes quiet for a year to two years, and then begins working on a sustained campaign to bring its brand back. It generally starts with smaller media outlets, local if, it can be in the, if it's in the business tech cross-section, and then it kind of grows out from there. The headline reads, Why SolarWinds just may be one of the most secure software companies in the tech universe. By Jill at SC Media. I'm guessing SC Media is, uh, looks like they focus on cybersecurity and other things. Yeah, of course. And she writes her opening sentence, A house gets burglarized. The owners buy a fancy alarm system. A hurricane knocks a house down. It gets rebuilt. Bigger and stronger. Indeed, there are a slew of analogies that could be applied to solar winds, which just might now be among the most secure software companies in the tech universe. And you can kind of probably get a vibe for where it goes from here. I'm gonna I'm closing the door on a few business opportunities because Solar Winds is actually a surprisingly large company. And they they actually own quite a few sub brands that are interested in buying podcast advertising. But it shouldn't be able to work like this. You know, they screwed up fundamentally. As a brand, they should be dead. Right? It should be sold off. Should be done. Instead, this industry-pleasing media is going to write these soft pieces about them because, you know, it's just tech. Who cares? It doesn't hurt anybody. And they'll pump the brand and they'll pump the brand until they're back and they're bigger than ever and they're making billions of dollars again like they didn't make some sort of massive fundamental mistake that exposed millions of people's private information. And I find the process frustrating. And so I just kind of wanted to document it here so we could see the cycle in the show so we could all be aware of how they do this and how tech coverage isn't like regular media coverage. Oh, they don't take it seriously. Right. They don't. But I don't think the journalists, if you can call them that, they don't take it seriously either because it's not life and death stuff. It's not political scandals. 
It's tech stuff. We can even look at some of our, or my more beloved tech sites, and they've all weirdly turned into like navel-gazing pseudo-reporting on the media itself site, which I get, you know, Facebook decided to do crazy crap, but sometimes you just want a good old-fashioned, hey man, there's a new laptop out, <laughs> you know, or like there's this weird gadget. You know where this is going to take us, right? My pet peeve. Large accounting consultancies realizing there's a bunch of little companies in a small metro, let's call it Tampa, deciding that they are going to systematically rip that, like basically just cut prices and go into every mid, mid to somewhat large business to put those companies out of business by hiring just massive offshore teams or, you know, a couple, couple good poaches and... In the past, a lot of H-1Bs, but I don't, somehow that seems less and less a thing, or at least maybe in Florida, it's less of a thing. I don't know. In New York, I used to see it all the time, but it's really like, I'm not going to name names because I used to have a relative that worked at one of these, but it's, um, you know, these guys like need to see more growth and they can't, they can't handle, you know, a little ratatouille over here having even a piece of the bread, right? No baguette for you. Can I fry a little bacon? It has felt like the last few years, there has been decision after decision and policy after policy or strategy after strategy that is just absolutely crushing the small business. Like it started with the lockdowns, which universally advantaged large companies like your your box stores and disadvantaged small businesses. But we're also seeing it with the supply chain shortages now. Large businesses like Amazon and Walmart can actually afford to just fly their own jet planes in their own boats. But small businesses like the mom and pop hardware store near where I live can't get access to the same things. And that's just a, that's not one person or decision disadvantaging them. It's just a series. It's a structural disadvantage. And then on top of that, you have things like Blackwater that's going out and buying up real estate that's not only taking it from homeowners, but they're also buying up commercial real estate and offices that now bring the drive the price. Yes, they're my landlord. They're oh, yeah, that's landlord. right. Yeah, that's right. But you, you you get my point. Like, it seems like this is getting gnawed at from several different directions. Like, maybe it's just that there's all of these giant institutions now. And because these giant institutions are so big, they just suck up all of the resources around them. Well, well, this is the thing. This is what the Chinese have right, right? That it's... It turns out mercantilism was flawed, but fundamentally correct. There is just a limited amount of resources in a given area. And there is no such thing. I'll give you an example. COVID is definitely a part of this, too. And I think that they were able to use COVID to their advantage. There used to be five or six, and let's call it the Tampa Hillsborough County area, like moderately small to like medium size, like bigger, bigger than the, the Mad Botter or, you know, like around that, you know, around that like small businessy indie size dev shops doing dev or dev adjacent things, right? A lot of the couple of them, you know, put on their hipster glasses and plaid and said they were design jobs, whatever. Same thing. Now there's, to my knowledge, three of us left. That barely counts because one of them just decided to offshore a bunch of their stuff. Wow. 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 It's me, and I'll plug them. Source though, they're good, but they're they're also half, you know, they're half in Australia, I think. So it's uh, they do, but the way the, the survivors survived was by niching down super hard. 
like we do the automation stuff with Alice and we do like, you know, process, you know, software for basically enterprise line of business, you know, run your business, right. Get your analytics for your internal, whether it's your farm or you're, you're repairing jet engines. Those are basically our two big areas right now. Or you're a small business, want to automate some of your stuff, integrate multiple services, go to alice.dev. We can do that for you very affordably. The other guys, they focus on cruise ships. Source to that they just like all in on cruise ships. If you are a Russian oligarch and your yacht has not been seized, go talk to Greg over at Source to. He can hook you up, <laughs> although I don't think he will. <laughs> so but he could. This is the thing. This is see, this is the thing. So you have them sucking up the resources, right? You're making it harder and harder for these niche businesses to exist, which means I think that's a whole other set of, a whole other conversation, actually. But going back to the solar winds piece, this is why I think solar winds should just go away. It should be broken up into its all subsidiaries, all of its individual pieces, and it should be a dozen small little businesses. And we should be hitting the reset button from time to time to help keep this ecosystem healthy. But instead, we have this kind of press coverage and this kind of brand repair that they engage in. And I'm not even I'm not even claiming that SC Media or SC Magazine was paid for this or that it's native advertisement. Could be. But I actually think the way the incentive system works, because getting access to these CEOs and getting connections is what keeps these types of outlets going, they have to kind of do this stuff. It's the incentive structure. In order for them... To get somebody at SolarWinds in the future to pick up the phone, they got to kind of engage in this sort of stuff. It's not even a malicious thing. I occasionally write book reviews and I used to do the Manning, uh, you know, the Manning Press, like the early access books they sent to dev and they'd be like, hey, free book if you want to write a review. But they're always like PDFs. I used to get those too back in the old days. Back in the day, they don't do that anymore. And I would occasionally review them. Well, that was a mistake. Every, every it's like every Monday my email box is deluged with and it's always like a random crap <laughs> I know it's like I would I was willing to do a few like Linux on topic ones and then all of a sudden it was just yeah unbelievable it's because again the incentive structure okay so going back to this and this is why I really think this matters is the SC media doesn't even have to be doing anything malicious the incentive structure of advertised based media is such that the reader is just not the customer. So it's not in their interest to get you the most accurate information. It's not a malicious thing. The tech industry and the advertisers in that tech ecosystem are the customer. You guys have heard it a million times. If you're not paying for the product, you are the product. It's true in media too. And side note, this is why memberships are a big deal for our show. This is why the boosts are a big deal for our show. Because it means our largest customer, our most important customer as a business, is our audience. You're our customer. It gives us the leeway to work with other advertisers and pick the right ones, but it doesn't mean we have to, right? We have choice in the matter. That's the difference. You are the customer. But in the case of SC Media, you're not the customer. I want to read this email that came into the show a couple hours before the show. Hello, my name is Monica, and I'm an outreach assistant at ZZB Agency, a small company representing a handful of real money gambling and betting-related clients. While looking for potential partners for a content marketing campaign, I stumbled upon Jupiter Broadcasting and found that it would probably be of interest to our partners. So allow me to ask you, are you open to publishing paid articles with do-follow real money gambling or betting-related links in their text on their website? I think she's saying it links that go to the gambling website. 
I'm well aware that the fact that this business is in general pretty sensitive and that any collaboration in this area would involve higher rates than usual. If you're open to working with my partners of this type, please let us know your asking price for a paid article with one live link in its body. Please include the price of creating the article as well. If you have any questions, feel free to ask. Best regards, Monica. Came in this morning. Comes in all the time. I actually got three this morning to office hours. It's a brand new show. I got three like this. That's like extra shady. I know. I'm willing to pay you a little more and, you know, keep it a secret. Don't say right, anything. Right. The implication is don't put like a sponsored content thing under it. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of stuff comes into shows like ours all the time. And if you weren't the customer, eventually a business has to survive, right? And eventually you just, you know, the right kind of offer, maybe it's not that one, but the right kind of offer comes in. It's a little shady, but you're willing to do it because the money's good. And pretty soon it just becomes a standard practice of business. It's not even considered immoral anymore. It's just the business you're doing. And that is what happens in the tech press. All of the tech press is like this. It's bad. It's all like this, right? And I mean, there's exceptions for sure. I'm, when I say all, I guess I'm really talking about all the big ones, like Mike's favorite, The Verge, a few others. Hey, okay. You know what, though? The Verge at least says when they're doing it. They put that, they put that big sponsored banner. Right. And then I just don't click on it. But that's still there's still that problem. And I think it's one of the things that our show does not suffer from. And some shows that you and I listen to do suffer from. There is that problem where if you want to maintain a relationship with individuals in a company, sources and whatnot, there's just certain things you won't say or there's just certain things you'll interpret a certain way because you're incentivized to do it that way. Right. It's just human nature. You know what I mean? And that just. I think is a really rampant problem in tech because it's, it's a close community and because it's not high stakes compared to other types of news coverage, I think it allows for those kinds of relationships to form more. I, I don't know for sure, but based on my 15 years of kind of watching all of it, I sure seem to observe, observe that kind of behavior and that practice an awful lot to think it's just at this point, pretty widespread. And so you see it in things like this brand repair campaign. If you go search solar winds, on Google News, you would think the largest cyber attack in U.S. history, which is what it was called over and over and over again, it even has its own, they gave it a name. You would think that if you looked on news.google.com for SolarWinds, maybe the largest cyber compromise that's ever happened in U.S. history might show up. Instead, what you will see is 20 or 30 spin articles that are part of a sustained campaign that's been going on right up until their earnings are announced in just a few days to spin the brand as this recovery brand. And Google News just surfaces what everybody's reporting. That's what, you know, all these different little no-name outlets are all publishing and it begins to create this noise and it just all that surfaces now in the feeds. And I thought it'd be interesting for us to be able to watch it happen in real time. That's really all. We're a little sad. <laughs> yeah, or perhaps could be a little sad, but at least it's good to know that's how these things go down. So we can invent new thought technologies to process the information, Mike. That sounds great. <laughs> Ask not what your podcast can boost for you, but what you can boost for your podcast. All right, we got some boosts. Boostagram. Trevdev boosted in with some Leet Sats 1337 five days ago. Mike, you can use ZSH and a completion plugin, by the way. Spell like you could spell PGSQL correctly once. And then if you use Control-E, it'll complete repetitive queries for you automatically. 
I mean, sure, these fangled new terminals offer uh, lots of stuff, but very little for a dude just trying to write some Python. And also, please don't feed the animals while visiting the zoo. That's right. Not sure why you would. ZSH, plug in at love, I guess. So, yeah, probably shouldn't do that. Tim Apple boosted in with a row of ducks, 2,222 sats. I'm a duck, D-U-K, duck, loaded with talent. When you read that letter from Lenart and you said 2014, I couldn't believe it. It seemed just like it was the other day. What a ride. Also, people are still bitching about SystemD all these years later. Microsoft has one thing right, though. Oh, wait. Forgot what it was. Well, <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Look at this. Hummingbird boosted in with 20,374 sats. Boom. Regarding VS Code and Microsoft spying on you, you can just turn off the telemetry. That's what we do. Fair. I actually, like I was saying last week, and I'm surprised nobody said anything about this, I leave it on on purposeful. So you want to rep the Linux. Yeah, yeah that's right. I want to rep the Linux. I'm curious if anybody else does that, but nobody else boosted in. I, I do it for Edge, actually. I, I, but I turn it off on Mac because they don't need to see that. <laughs> There's enough Macs out there. I, I'm a closeted Mac. <laughs> Brosnan Wing boosted in with Leet Sats. <laughs> Mike and Chris, I have a dream. I want to be in my car on my hour-long commute listening to Jupiter Broadcasting. When something interesting is talked about on the show and I have a thought, I just want to pause the podcast and say into the air, Siri, boost into Coda Radio, save blah, blah, blah with X amount of sats without ever having to leave Apple CarPlay. What do you think? Is that going to be possible in the future? I wonder. I wonder. No, because aren't sats a, a proxy for money? Yes, but Fountain App is an iOS app that already lets you boost in and Castomatic too. So there's 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 podcast apps that let you do it. So you don't buy the sats in the app. That's I think. Oh, uh, okay. So it's like if you buy like eBucks or V Bucks, whatever it was for Fortnite. right. So you like you use something like Strike or Blue Wallet to buy the sats, which are in iOS, but they've been approved as like Strike is like a legit uh, payments app. Well, then yeah, you could probably do it then. Yeah, I would think so, because uh, Fountain is working on a CarPlay app. If the Boost feature's in there, I'm not sure, but that could ah, be pretty perfect. neat. You can mine Bitcoin on the road, as, as one <laughs> <Yeah>. does. <laughs> I've thought about that. When I'm going down the road in the RV, I've got solar. I've got a really big gen- or alternator in that thing. I have got more power than I know what to do with when I'm going down the road. So why not? Why not? Uh, sir, license the registration officer. I'm so <laughs> close to uh, a 50th of a Bitcoin right now. Yeah, I don't want to stop now. <laughs> I, I might get some Bitcoin dust. Oh, I don't want to stop. man. All right, so the Golden Dragon boosted in with another row of ducks. Thank you very much. And here's something for your trouble. This is a great show, guys. How would I go about learning how to set up a hosted service for my own that I can use outside my home and attach a domain name? to it you listen to self-hosted that's a good start i think golden dragon probably does i was thinking too there's some good lino guides on this Mm. and what you really want is you get a dns name you register your domain name and then you get like a guide for lino that tells you how to point that domain name to your linode there's several ways to do that including just the changing the name servers, actually moving them all that you'll have to do some reading on that golden dragon and you probably want to put cloudflare in front of that yeah, absolutely. That's what I'm doing these days. I'm putting cloud. I'm yep. So that's those Russian bots don't care. They're going to keep hitting every port they can find. 
Golden Dragon kept it going with a triple boost, 1,111 sats. He says, uh, which version of Carolina barbecue are you guys into? I went several years ago and had Eastern Northern Carolina style and was very impressed. Hold on. Hold on. Yes, there's more than one version. Oh, my God. You got to be kidding me. So, Vimmer Emacs, their Golden Dragon, go. <laughs> you know, uh, can I say something controversial here? I don't know for sure. I'd be willing to try this somehow. I think the Carolinans go on about their barbecue because they're just far enough away from Austin to eat real barbecue. And so they think they've got great barbecue because they've got good sauces, right? Mm. But But great Texas barbecue starts with meat that is incredible. And then they custom design a sauce that complements the specific flavor attributes of that meat. And the two, when they go together, change your life. And I've been hanging out with the Linux Academy and uh, (laughs) tell people too much. I'm telling you. Carolina barbecue is amazing. No, no, I'm telling you. It might be good, right? I mean, it might be like really good, right? But if you get the right barbecue in Austin, Texas, it will change your life. It'll change your life. You you will not. You will leave the barbecue place. Not why can't we love them both? Life changing. That's right. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm willing to. I'm willing to try it. I'm willing to experiment. I'm willing to sacrifice that if I have to travel to Texas and the Carolinas to to put this to rest. By God, I will. You know what I had for dinner yesterday? Did you have barbecue? Mango habanero ribs, homemade. They were fantastic. Fall off the bone. Ooh, I didn't make them, but they were great. All right. All right. Splurk boosts in with 777 sats. Great podcast. I really appreciate your perspectives on the industry. I just wanted to comment on the software conservancy issue. We talked about last week how they're raising a big stink about GitHub. It seems to me that the SFC and the FSF are actually anti-freedom. They simply just don't have patience for devs or companies who want to make a living off GPL code. They feel more like a religious cult than an altruistic organization. Microsoft might not be the best open source player, but they are putting money and time into open source. And in my humble opinion, that's way more valuable than naming and shaming. Wow. Now, I feel like he's not giving the FSC and the Free Software Foundation credit for everything they have accomplished, the projects they've supported, the infrastructure they provide. But I think what Splurk does touch on is the overall vibe that the broader community who doesn't follow all the nuances and developments is getting. And I think it's a problem for those organizations because I think it makes them less effective in messaging. I don't know. I'd give them a little, I'd give them a little more credit than that. I mean, I, you know, I, I keep seeing this and it, get back in my day, an easy way to get, you know, a laugh out of really any dev conference or especially Linux oriented ones was to dunk on Microsoft. And I feel like just because of how you know, age and time work, many of the people who now run these organizations have a lot of that old like Microsoft is evil bias. And I'm kind of like, well, they're all evil, right? Look at what happened to our beautiful son. It's dead. And Red Hat is now joined IBM. So I, you know, I would rather a little bit of a little bit of demon blood and they survive. I think what you're touching on there, I could expand on just a bit by saying with IBM buying Red Hat and the changes we've seen in the tech industry, and honestly, also listening to some of those older clips. So we just recorded the Coderly for our members and we played some old clips, predictions and whatnot that we made from like 2014 and 15. And 
after hearing that, after doing that episode and then reflecting on stuff, I'm like, none of these companies really hold up over the long time. Like if anybody gets too brand loyal or, or really, really anything that's too centralized eventually will disappoint you. That's essentially what it is. And Linux was a, was a great thing because it's such a decentralized spread out thing that it's not like one company there's no Linux CEO. There's no like one company that is running Linux. I mean, there's the Linux Foundation now. Perhaps that'll be a problem at some point as it gets more and more centralized. But thank you, uh, Slurk. That's um, some interesting stuff to ponder. I love the boosts that make us think. I love all the boosts. Thank you, everybody who does that. Again, we, of course, we've done this for forever. We're, we're always, we're really, we do this because we, we enjoy doing the show. We want to make something for you guys. So you guys really are our customer. And, the, and what's great about the boosts, what's great about the memberships, is it aligns the business that way too. So we also, just to wrap it up, we got a couple of thank you boosts. 200 sats were streamed from user 6594. We got an additional 222 sats from Golden Dragon with an early thanks for the show and saying that his Python journey has been quite the trip. Golden Dragon on fire, on fire this week with the boost. Some of really a big bulk of the support this week's episode came from Golden Dragon. And he's, at, well. and he's in the live stream right now too. So like, Fist bump, Golden Dragon. He's a coder completist. Probably, he probably has a rope. You're right. If he doesn't, he should be first on the list. He is a coder. He is officially a coder completist. There we go. Egon's going to have to share some of the wine. Uh, we also got 475 thank you uh, sats for a next episode boost coming from KP Yovak, in, also in the chat room right now. And we got 1,000 sats from X Thumbs X who says, Plus one on the coder cocktail swag idea. Cocktail glass for the win. <laughs> we got to get on that. We got to get a swag. It, it should on the other side of it have a laptop just like sparking out. <laughs> complete, a complete set. If you'd like to be a member, we would appreciate it. It's a great way to support the show. You get the coderly report that we release once a quarter, a little extra episode, and you get an ad-free version of the show. And in the future, probably towards the end of the year or so, you'll get a live version if you'd like a totally unedited unscripted whatever whatever they call it behind the scenes that's what i'm looking for um you can i advise you though the drew edited version much better sound much better pacing drew does magic really so we'll always keep the ad free feed around too so that way members can benefit from that work he does you can sign up at coderqa.co for that Keep an eye out, members, for the Coderly Report. It'll be coming out soon. We don't have a specific date yet, but because we just sort of slip it into the uh, work queue as we have it, but it'll be out soon. Mr. Dominic, is there anywhere you'd like to send the people this week? Uh, go to alice.dev if you want some automation goodness. Who doesn't? That's right. That's right. Alice.dev for that. You can find the show on Twitter at Coder Radio Show and the whole network where announcements for all the shows come out and stuffs. That's at Jupiter Signal. And if you've made it this far, a little pro tip, we're working on a brand new website. If you've got a designer eye or if you're a Hugo expert, go check out jupiterbroadcasting.net. Yep. It's an MVP right now, but we're working on a static site that's generated by GitHub Actions and then auto-publishes. It's going to be awesome. We have a matrix room where we're discussing that, and we have issues on our GitHub. If you'd like to peruse that, we'd love your input Ooh, over this there. This is nice. Thank you. Links to what we talked about today are at coder.show slash 475. You'll find our contact form there. Also, our RSS feed, so you can subscribe and get the show automatically. And don't forget, you can join us live over at jupiter.tube on Mondays at noon Pacific, 
3 p.m. Eastern. Thanks so much for joining us on this week's episode of the Coda Radio Program. See you back here next week.